Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish dash tech dash news. Hello and welcome to the show with me, Gillian Godsell. Today, my guest is Tom Series who is the co-founder and managing partner of Warwick Series Investments. Am I pronouncing your surname right, Tom? Yes, you certainly are. Good, good. Because as I was saying, I was going, mm-hmm. am I saying Series? Because it's spelled S-E-R-R-E-S. I'll say that now because people want to look you up later. So Tom, you, know, you it's are... even cooler is it's the same way forwards and backwards. Oh, what's that called? Palindrome, is it or something? Palindrome. Yeah, palindrome. Something oh, like that, that is very cool. <laughs> it's a shame yeah, that your cool. first name is Easy the to same. remember. You should be called, I don't know. Mott or Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> that is very cool. Okay. Sometimes so, I feel like a mutt, so you can totally call me Mott. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that is really interesting. I didn't know there are very few surnames, I imagine, that are palind- palindromes. Very few words. Yeah, are very few. Very few. Wow. So anyway, the, the Warbrick series investment is a web three venture fund. And we're going to get to that in a minute. There's a lot of interesting things happening and the speed of growth and, and the amount of uh, uh, projects involved are, are huge. But Tom, I'd like to sort of to understand a bit about you and your background. Uh, where were you born and, and tell me a bit about your upbringing? Yeah, so <clears throat> I was raised in Texas, actually, uh, pretty much my entire life, um, other than uh, really uh, high school. Um, went to the University of Texas at Austin, um, studied business, uh, accounting and entrepreneurship, and a little bit of Chinese as well. So <clears throat> those are sort of my early days. Um, started my first company in college, actually. Oh, what did um, you what did you start? Mm-hmm. Um, it was called a company called Rally. Um, oh, you started, started Rally it. while you were still in college. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my sure goodness! Did. The way you threw that into the conversation, it's like, oh, you know, I had a pizza delivery business <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Rally is like the largest. I did work for Papa John's Pizza for a bit there. It was kind of fun. I mean, Rally is is is, is I don't know if it still is, but it was a huge. It's the largest political fundraising platform. In the states, in yeah. The back back in um, you know my heyday when I was building Rally, we uh, you know grew it quite substantially. We powered about seventy thousand political operations across the United States. Uh, we're moving you know pretty substantial volumes of capital across the network. Uh, powered numerous presidential campaigns all the way down to dog catcher. So if you're running for dog catcher in your local precinct, we probably helped you raise money on the internet. Um, I think when I sold the company in 2014, about 50% of all political contributions in the United States that occurred online ran through my company. And what did you offer? What sort of, how did your platform make it important? Yeah. I mean, if you go back, to the time period when we started Rally, um, <clears throat> there really wasn't a lot of uh, easy payment alternatives. Uh, PayPal was really just beginning. X.com was kind of a new thing, if you recall Elon Musk launching uh, X.com, which was the sort of a programmatic predecessor to PayPal, and then they merged and became what PayPal basically is today. Um, but you know, payment tech was pretty much non-existent other than having sort of what was known at the time as a merchant account. Um, You can still get merchant accounts today. Um, But it was really complicated and very difficult uh, to get those things if you didn't have predictable revenue flows. 
um, and political operations are highly cyclical businesses, right? You only really raise money or generate revenue in the form of donations once every couple of years mm -hmm. when you decide to run for office again. Mm -hmm. um, so it made it very, very difficult for most political operations to actually um, collect and process money online. And uh, what we did is we basically provided a payment aggregation uh, service where we aggregated and assumed essentially all of the, the risk against the entire category of merchants um, and helped kind of like smooth out um, essentially transaction flows to sort of de-risk de -risk the profile of that particular um, merchant category. Um, and then basically provided, you know, online donation forms. We provided um, different ways to sort of collect and manage and report on the data to the various um, government agencies in the United States that wanted to receive government data in relation to a political contribution. Um, we offered tools and tooling for people to, um, you know, integrate their fundraising with, you know, at the time their Facebook pages and Twitter accounts and different things like that. So we made it much, much more social. Um, so that's what we did. We did that for a very, very long period of time. How, how did you know, where, how did you spot the need? You're in college. So were you political yourself? Yeah, um, I wasn't necessarily political. I mean, I was definitely, um, you know, a person that believed in, um, you know, advocacy and diplomacy and, you know, statesmanship and things like that at a young age. Um, I happened to get involved with a political campaign by happenstance. It was totally, really just kind of accidental. Um, and when I saw the sort of challenges and trials and tribulations that, you know, she went through as a, you know, as a woman running for public office, both technologically speaking and, you know, culturally speaking, um, I sort of came out of that um, experience and decided that I wanted to level the playing field and make it easier for anybody to run for public office. Um, in the United States, 95% uh, of political campaigns are run by, won by those who raise the most amount of money, mm. right? So you raise the money and then you spend money on advertising to generate name ID and name ID translates into votes, right? And that's pretty much the entire formula for running for public office. Um, you know, campaigns are never one on issues or one on values, which was a really valuable lesson that I learned um, building that particular company. And so Say that again, hmm. campaigns were never one on issues, they're one on values. That's right. Yeah. That's interesting. Because in yeah. most other parts of the world, it's it's issue-led politics. Democracy tends to be issue-led. You would think so, but people don't really vote that way. People vote with how they feel and you know, whether or not you share similar core values or societal values. Um, you and that actually transcends, I think, the United States. You know, I did a little bit of work in the UK um, for a certain uh, prime minister. I can blank it on his name at the moment. It was, I think it was the one right after Tony Blair. What was his name? Uh, Brown. <laughs> this was a long time. Brown. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I actually got to, got to go to Ten Downing and like kind of like you know wander the halls and walk up the stairways and go into the signing room and. Yeah kind of help with sort of, you know, um, in a digital campaigning um, politically in a, in a sort of digital manner was pretty darn new back then. Uh, it wasn't really until Obama, you know, won, quote, yes. using technology in 2008, where guys like me all of a sudden became extremely relevant. 
And then, of course, um, you jump onto Cambridge Analytica and it's like, mm, next level. Yeah, well, it's about to get even worse, you know, so <laughs> that was just the tip of the iceberg, really. Wow. And just one question I want to ask you too about that particular period. Um, I was reading your Forbes article about how you were trying to raise money enough and you decided to use your, like, to eat your own dog food to actually use crowdfunding yeah. <clears throat> fund rather than go through the VC route. That was kind of a, a fun challenging yeah, thing to do. It was sort of <clears throat> crypto before crypto, right? So, you know, we had done a bunch of early experimentation with Bitcoin, integrating Bitcoin into um, checkout forms back in 2011, 2012, um, because we had a number of political operations that wanted to collect Bitcoin uh, as, as a part of checkout. And so I was already kind of like starting to scratch the surface a little bit on crypto and Bitcoin uh, there in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then I ended up teaming up with uh, Naval, who at the time was starting AngelList. Um, and I got connected to him uh, through a mutual acquaintance. And he sort of told me about AngelList and some of his ideas there. And we decided to experiment with my company to see if we could raise a Series A financing round entirely on the internet. Um, and we did. We ended up, it ended up being really uh, incredibly successful. I ended up raising uh, something like eight million dollars in ten days entirely over the internet, mm. which was the first time it ever that it ever happened ever yeah. in history. I love um, that Forbes article. They have a, a running diary, and it's so funny. It's like one a.m. series falls asleep, <laughs> and, <you come> back <laughs> and you, your, your babysitter is minding yeah. your daughter because you were a single dad at that stage. But um, yes. so, how important? I'm jumping topics a little bit, but I do want to ask how important because you, you had your daughter in the picture with Forbes. Yeah. And the Ford magazine, and you mentioned her a lot, the babysitter, and how you were juggling everything, whatever. Mm. So, how important is family to you? I mean, or, or, or no, different question. Sorry, how do you balance family and work then? You know, it's extraordinarily difficult as a <clears throat> founder and as an entrepreneur. I think that's one of the, you know, one of the things I, I like to think that I provide to our founders at Warburg Saris, uh, which is, you know, understanding the psychology of a founder um, and everything that a founder goes through. Because um, building a company is 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 not easy. Um, it's actually quite difficult once you actually decide that you want to go build a company. Um, so you really have to, you know, um, work very hard at it. Um, <clears throat> I don't think there's actually like a perfect solution. To be totally frank, um, you know, you 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 do your best to try to balance, you know, everything from your personal relationships to your family, uh, to the needs of your family and your friends. And sometimes you do it pretty well and sometimes you don't. <clears throat> and um, you kind of learn, learn from that experience. I certainly learned from that experience quite a bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of came out of my experience of building Rally. And uh, one of the things that, you know, was really ended up becoming even more valuable to me is, you know, we scaled really quickly, right? It was a 10-year company that really grew quite fast in the last maybe three years of the company. Um, but it took about seven years just to get it there. Um, and, you know, I sort of, you know, as you're kind of building a company, you kind of lose sight of, you know, um, designing, designing the world that you want to live in. Right. And so, um, you end up, especially when you have 150 plus employees and you're burning lots of money every month and you're making lots of money and you're traveling all over the world and giving talks and, building product and selling customers and uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, you, you tend to let, you tend to end up sometimes in a world where 
um, the world is sort of dictating to you how you kind of spend your spend your time and spend your life and your assistants scheduling your calendar for you and all these different things. And <clears throat> I came out of that experience after um, selling my company. I said, you know what? Um, I traveled the world for a while uh, after I sold the company. I said, I'm going to focus more on lifestyle design, you know, as my next sort of great endeavor for myself. Um, and that's what I did. I just, you know, sort of sat back and said, I want to be really intentional about how I design the world that I live in, um, as opposed to letting the world sort of dictate, you know, how I should be. Um, and that took a lot of discipline to kind of like implement that kind of lifestyle. And look, you know, nobody's perfect. And at the end of the day, um, you know, I don't always achieve that successfully, but um, it is something that I choose to live by as a general principle and value so family really plays into that for me yeah so it's a mindful approach that it's it's actually yeah. a considered approach because i interviewed uh, an entrepreneur some time ago and he we were talking about the lack of women entrepreneurs and he said there's another yep. possible reason he said that a lot of women when they want to be entrepreneurs they're also thinking about the life balance because maybe they've got children maybe mm -hmm. they've got parents whatever so they are not yep. maybe creating companies that are going to scale as fast because they want to have the lifestyle as they're growing their company which I had not considered before. So that's interesting. So you, you, your next stage was your next uh, thing. Your animal ventures. That's the next project you got into. Yeah. And this is not about right. rescuing ponies or, or puppies. No, no, definitely not. No, like though, as I was, you know, telling somebody else earlier that you know people often would call us animal adventures, um, which is kind of cool. I could go do that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, animal ventures was sort of the next thing I did with my uh, partner Bettina. Um, she and I really uh, connected uh, back in like 2013, 2014, um, actually met earlier than that, several years prior to that on an airplane flying to the UK for like STEM education uh, hackathon on a British Airways flight that was sponsored by IDEO. Um, That's interesting. And eventually, yeah, it was really kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so we... Um, really started investing time and energy uh, really pretty early 2013, 2014 into the crypto community more broadly. Um, you know, we had kind of established a pretty loose network of a lot of uh, early crypto developers, everybody from like Nick Zabo to Dominic Williams over at Definity Foundation and, you know, the likes of Vitalik and Gavin Wood and Yetta Steiner and um, guys like um, Roam over at Flow and right a lot of these kind of early crypto people, um, a lot of the early to Fabian Volgesteller who wrote ERC20 and is now building, um, he did way more than that. He actually built the, the first uh, Ethereum wallet implementation and then went on to build Miss Browser as well too. This is all super crazy early and nobody really mm. knew what was going on. And, um, you know, so we really, uh, you know, just started, to be frank, hanging out with a lot of these guys. I think what I noticed, you know, having, having met them, I was like, man, these people are ridiculously smart. They're about a hundred million times smarter than I am. So I should probably hang out with them more. Good move, good move. <laughs> like that was sort of, that was a good move. Um, yeah. And, you know, we started doing a little bit of investing into Ethereum back then and, um, you know, and started, you know, traveling around the world and, you know, to be frank, I really didn't even fully uh, understand Web3 as well as I uh, understood today, but I remember reading the Ethereum white paper and this idea of like, 
a world computer, right? Deterministic state machines. You can build apps on them and you can come up with, you know, these really highly composable uh, software solutions. And I always thought like, wow, that's going to be a really freaking powerful idea. It's, 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 it's essentially what the internet should have been. And um, so mostly just a lot of sweat equity rolled up our sleeves and just started helping founders, um, helping them kind of think about partnering with, you know, big for-profit entities. And we started doing a lot of consulting and advisor, advisory work for, you know, everybody from, you know, the executive management team at uh, FedEx to Axa Group, VMware, Merck Pharmaceutical, uh, you name it. This is a huge roster of very, very, very large companies. This is probably, you know, 2015, 2016 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, wow, those companies were like, were doing crypto stuff back back then. They definitely were. They were really, really slow. They're still really, really slow. Say, and I'm not entirely hear. sure they've actually done anything we suggested, but that's mm. okay. They were digging into it. Um, I was going to say, because all those names I know, obviously, I'm going to I don't really hear much, yeah. much in, in this space. Before no, I, I think that, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say before I bring you into the actual Web3 stuff, fully into it, uh, you're a junk professor at the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. What are you teaching? Web3. Web okay, so, mm-hmm. oh, okay. That's one of the first it's also my. It's also my alma mater as well, too. I went yes. to the University of Texas as well. So, yeah. is that, are you one of the first professors of Web3? I've never um, heard of them before. I think, yeah, I mean, there have been people that have been like teaching you know, things about blockchain, very, very few. And and most of them were, you know, to be totally, totally truthful, really did not understand it as Web3, mm-hmm. right? They really kind of taught it more as like these like databases, right? Where they talked taught about it as like, you know, a financial instrument. And like, nah, you guys are missing the picture, right? There's a much bigger picture here. Um, that they're missing. And and I think that, um, you know, Bettina and I sort of set out with our co-author, Bill Wagner, to try to write a textbook called The Basics of Blockchain so that we could create sort of a pedagogically sound, you know, module-based um, university-level textbook for students at university because we sort of knew. And as we traveled around the world, speaking to tens of thousands of people at conferences and, um, you know, things like that, we were like, you know, this community is going to need a lot more people. So we spent a lot of time really kind of recruiting the world to participate in Web3. Um, and then, you know, I think come 2016, 2017, when ETH hit $1,000 for the first time, you know, like even my mind exploded. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> uh, I definitely sold this a lot. Real. This is real. <laughs> like, who knows what's happening here? This is crazy. I told him I'm a definitely old long-term believer but this is nuts you know um the total so, vindication though isn't it like it's a vindication yeah, it was of what you're talking about and like wow this is this is, yeah. this is serious yeah well you know you would think it's vindication but then when it crashed back down to a hundred dollars some like three five months later you know everyone was like see i told you i was like no 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 that was just the that was just the opening salvo just wait yeah this thing's going to take over the world and these networks are going to be worth tens of trillions, maybe even hundreds of trillions of dollars, if not more potentially, right? So I always tell people like, imagine if you could own a share of TCPIP, right? What would that be worth today? Yeah. Uh, I, oh, immeasurable, right? I mean, yeah. if, you, if, if you just say GDP because 
the 95% of the world's communication traffic runs over the TCP IP protocol. Um, if you took the derivatives of that, could value it in the sort of quintillions or something like that. Um, absolutely insane uh, yeah. measures of value. Um, so aside from making money, like really at the end of the day, we weren't in it necessarily for making money because I guarantee you the early crypto people, you know, were super crazy poor. <laughs> Most of them definitely did not have money. Um, and they were living off of ETH. I remember early Ethereum days, you know, most of the uh, early Ethereum employees, they got paid in ETH. And you could actually see if you monitored on Kraken, you could see roughly around the first and 15th uh, of uh, every month. Cashing in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's how they got paid, right? Yeah, and, like, they had to pay by groceries. ETH for rent. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah had, to, had to do um, but it, you know, so when you look at that kind of history and that trajectory and the people that were around it, you know, we weren't really in, in it because we were necessarily going to make money. It was just a ridiculously exciting technology with unbounded potential. Um, and I just wanted to be a part of that, frankly. So nine, uh, 2019, you formally founded the Warburg Series Investment um, yep. business. So it's a VC, it's a, it's a Web3 venture fund. So yep. You were telling me before we started recording, you've got 60 companies, founders that you're so managing. Yeah. So yeah. And you're so going, far. you're going at speed. <clears throat> you haven't stopped. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I mean, we were, we were investing pretty early, actually. You know, obviously we bought some ETH early on. Um, we were early seed investors in a wide variety of uh, what are now really large layer one networks. So we were, we ended up being uh, early seed investors in uh, Polkadot, Definity, Flow, Near, Luxo. Um, those are really kind of the main ones uh, as layer one machines. Um, and we really kind of believed in this idea of the internet computer, the world computer. Um, and that, you know, uh, either we'll end up in a world where it's multiple blockchains or we'll end up in a world where it's one really freaking massive one. My intuition tells me we'll probably end up in a world where it's one really freaking massive one, or it'll be a substrate model similar to what Polkadot is doing, where you have, you know, these kind of substrates, you know, app category based chains that are connected to a, um, you can call it a layer zero. I don't really like that term, right? But a layer one, really, where you settle state finality of that chain, and then you can relay the state back to the other chains. Um, or it'll be a subnet model similar to what Definity is doing, which is not too dissimilar than a, than a, than a substrate model, but, or it'll be an EVM, uh, which is which is basically what Ethereum is and the various derivatives of Ethereum that exist in the market. Um, you know, there's, I have my own theories as to why I think we'll probably end up with, you know, one chain to rule them all, yeah. right? And when I say Polkadot, that's one chain in my mind, even including the substrates. Yes, it's a separate blockchain, yeah. But they still settle back to the Polkadot Relay Network, or they settle back to, you know, Definity Network more broadly. Um, so, you know, mostly, you know, my theory kind of rests in this kind of, you know, technology tends to gravitate to the most efficient, you know, pathways, you know, the lowest um, transaction costs associated with uh, transfer of information and data. And you can look at the history of the world to really kind of like get wrap your mind around that because 
when you think about, you know, how we used to communicate with each other, right? If I wanted to call you, I had to like run a line directly to your house and I could call you. Mm-hmm. That was pretty useful, but only to call you. Then if I want to call my friend George, I have to run a line directly to him, but then you guys couldn't talk to each other. So we introduced an, uh, essentially a relay, right? We introduced a telephone operator that sat in the middle. And so we'd call the operator and the operator would call you. Yeah. And that definitely made communication much more efficient um, and lower transaction cost for me to ultimately contact you. Then you fast forward later and we basically took that same concept um, and, and essentially invented like packet switching Right, and that led us to the creation of the TCP/IP protocol. And um, you know, when you are transmitting information and data through the TCP/IP protocol, um, you're actually uh, using um, virtual relay circuits. Right. So yeah, it's vastly more efficient. Right, and much much more scalable um, as a technological solution. Um, and to be frank, works pretty darn well. Right. Um, so you definitely think that technology will win the game and not marketing? I'm thinking, of course, of the VHS, sure. you know, the old VHS uh, Betamax fight that VHS won over the inferior, although it was inferior in its technology. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that be would be it would be too simplistic for me to say technology only will win <clears throat> because you know you definitely have to have a great team and marketing and different and things like that to kind of help. Yeah, yeah, you have to build the yeah. demand side for it for sure, but I think you know, contextual awareness, right? Which is what effectively a blockchain provides, right? I don't have to relay. There is no relay, mm-hmm. right? If I want to, you know, we, we are actually introducing relays. They're called bridging solutions. So like when you bridge from one network to another network, you're introducing latency, right? Mm-hmm. That's just not efficient. But if you run, if every single application runs on the same, you know, deterministic state machine, right? In the same environment, um, you have no relay. You have you have broad contextual awareness of everything that's going on instantly, um, and that actually is way, 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 way more efficient um, than what we have today. Um, and that you can see the the fruits of that labor when you look at um, the very beginning of ERC twenty, right, which basically became the uh, uh, fungible token standard, which eventually became the ICO, mm-hmm. and in twenty seventeen you saw this uh, basically code standard that um, basically said, hey, here's how we create a token, here's how we send a token, here's how we receive a token, et cetera, et cetera. Nine functions, essentially. Uh, the community agreed, this is, this is the way to do that. And what by, by virtue of doing that, you create an economic standard. Once you created that economic standard, then all of a sudden companies like Coinbase were able to exist. Coinbase would not exist without ERC-20, period. Right. And that's what was like a 50, 60 billion dollar IPO. Right? And let alone the 40 billion in capital that was raised that in 2017 that ultimately ended up flowing into other projects like Definity and Polkadot and mm-hmm. Flow and, you know, all these other projects that were able to leverage that ERC20 concept in order to uh, bootstrap their businesses um, and ultimately network adoption to, to be where we are today. Um, so that, that is the value that is provided by having these kind of um, code standards or composability of code on, in these machines. And, and I think that that is really powerful because 
at the end of the day, what, what, that, what that really means is that you're shortening innovation cycles, right? Because I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Here's this Lego that somebody else built. I can utilize it by burning tokens. And by doing that, I effectively increase the value of that component more broadly. And then I don't have to actually build it all over again. No different than any other open source project on NPM or whatever, you know, that I'm just, you know, giving a developer a pat on the back and saying, good job, buddy, for mm. building that thing, right? Now they're actually get to become billionaires because they built a component the entire world uses um, and every application uses. So, you know, when I look at all those kinds of things, I'm like, wow, that's really incredible. Um, and you were lucky, you know, not lucky, but in the right place you were able to identify because you're in so, your early, early projects. So, you know, same, it goes back to even my rally days, right? It's right place, right time sometimes. And, yeah. Or what does it say? They say when uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard that a lot. And it does make sense because even though I say it's a lucky break, I don't mean it as a lucky break. You have to be aware of it, you know? So it's, it's yeah, definitely. So tell me now about your other projects. That what are the criteria of the other, the more recent ones? So twenty nineteen yeah. pair ones. What other projects are you are you investing, and why? What's what type, and what are, what's what's the criteria? Yeah. <clears throat> so first and foremost, um, I have this um, fundamental belief because we're early stage investors. We're not late stage investors. We're we we like to be in several years before we like to be in when there's no product actually that's our preference okay um you know we like backing founders with big ideas and that's just kind of the way i've been and that was really actually a lesson i picked up from um reed hoffman was an investor in my first company in rally and i remember um sitting in his office one day and he said you know he was like somebody called me the other day and they were like hey you invested in this company rally and you must be really into like cause-based products and stuff like that. And he's like, I just, you know, support my founders, essentially. Mm -hmm. I, I back founders. I don't back, yeah. I don't back companies. I back founders. That's and, so you're actually right. You're pre-product. It's the actual founder. It's the person. It's right. the, uh, the connection. Well, that's interesting. Yep. So you're yep. obviously a good judge. Oh, my God. Are you a good judge of character? How successful are you? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, I think the benefit of having been an entrepreneur and built the company and built product and built engineering teams and built fraud prevention teams and raised capital and gotten the shit kicked out of me, just like any other entrepreneur does. Um, I think that teaches you a few things. Um, I think, you know, uh, I have a, I, I, you know, when I look at a founder, I'm like, do they smell like a product guy? <laughs> that's the question I have. That's, I like, that's called the, the sniffing criteria. <laughs> it's the sniffing criteria. It's like, yeah, yeah. Can we have a conversation about product for about 20 or 30 minutes? And yeah. can we have a really good time talking about product? And let me try to understand how you think about product because really product's crazy important, especially at that age, at that stage. Mm -hmm. um, and then like, you know, then the next question is, do I think you can pull it off? Are you gonna are you gonna really grind it out and do what's necessary in order to build this thing into a monster? Um, and so you know, we invest on power law curve returns as early stage VCs, right? My goal is 100x multiples on every single investment I do all the are time. You, are, you, are you are you getting there? Oh, we're definitely, yeah, for wow. sure. So, so you are a good yeah, judge yeah, yeah, of character. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that, but I certainly love good product. Mm. Um, and I love big, 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 big ideas. 
Um, and I love uh, big vision, um, which crypto definitely is. It's the game changing, it's world changing. Tell me a bit about some of the actual, can you talk about any of your actual uh, projects? <clears throat> yeah, so we have a, a very specific investment thesis. Um, we really fundamentally believe that what we're investing in as a layer one solution is a computer um, effectively, right? Um, and so, you know, we think about investing um, first in, in the computer itself, right? That kind of layer one uh, network. And then we invest up the tech stack, right? So we invest into um, middleware solutions, right? That enable um, applications to be built faster and more efficiently at lower, lower costs, right? Because that's effectively what middleware does, mm. right? Middleware reduces the cost of development Right, because you know now I don't have to go build a payment solution. I can just drop Stripe JS into my app, and boom, I'm taking payments. Right, because that's what you know Stripe is. Stripe's essentially a rent seeker that aggregates you know all the different methods and functions associated with processing and moving money, and compresses them into a JavaScript file that a developer can then doesn't have to know really shit about payment tech. Right, they can just drop that component directly into their application, and boom. Mm -hmm. You know, their application can then provide payment solutions to, to its users. Yeah. Um, and so we invest with that kind of concept in mind. So we're constantly, we're predominantly investing in middleware solutions um, being built on top of the layer ones that we're invested in. Um, and then from there, we have beliefs in sort of which categories we think at the application layer are going to be the most probably going to move first. So for example, you know, we did a lot of deep, you know, fine investing in DeFi, yeah. right? And everything, all the picks and shovels with DeFi and, you know, decentralized exchanges where we just recently invested in Binance US, which is going to be a great project as well too. Um, you know, so all that kind of stuff, the dark, you know, the modern day version of dark pools for trading and order books and um, looking at all that stuff. And then um, we've been investing for a while now in gaming so investing in, you know, play to earn uh, game studios and uh, metaverse companies and uh, middleware infrastructure for building and launching games, right? Because somebody's going to have to build the unity of Web3. Mm. It's going to have to happen. I don't know. And it's going to have to happen for each network independently, right? So somebody's going to be build the unity on Ethereum. Somebody's going to build the unity on Polkadot. Somebody's going to be build the NFT infrastructure, like unique network. Right, they're going to be building the you know NFT infrastructure for the polka dot. I'm going to ask you about right. Unique Network actually because that's how we were introduced. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you meet Unique, and what struck you about the company? Ah, uh, you know, uh, gosh, we met at NFT NYC not too long ago, um, and actually, um, you know, I was had just finished meeting with a gentleman by the name of Soda who was starting Astro Network, um, and it was like. That guy blew my fucking mind. I was like, whoa, dude. You're the curses get more smart. extreme as, as you get more like, oh my God, it's so <laughs> The smarter you are, the more custom <laughs> that comes out, right? Like, holy shit, that guy's awesome. Um, anyways, I had literally just finished meeting with him and he was about to start raising money for Astro Network. And then, and then one of my um, analysts was like, hey, I just saw this guy, Alex, give a talk at uh, NFT NYC. Uh, I want him to meet you. And so um, we had been chatting over Telegram um, and, and then we sort of linked up at this cafe right after I just met, finished meeting with Soda. And uh, I sat down with him. And what struck me about Alex 
is that a he is definitely a product guy he he definitely understands product he loves product you can tell he smells product everywhere he goes um it's in, you know this is my intuition essentially um he's a futurist yes um and i really love futurists uh because i think they have a unique perspective on the world especially when they fundamentally and deeply understand uh the technology at such an intimate level um that they can envision things that most of the world couldn't possibly envision until they're finally using it because he started building it 5 years ago right or however long it was that he you know starts building these things um and so you know after having these conversations with him I was like man yeah you really you know not only are you really technologically like sophisticated but you're a futurist as well and you clearly have a good nose for product and so we just want to be frank we hit it off I mm-hmm. I like talking to him I think that tends to be a good lit- litmus test if if I learn something from you and we like hanging out that's probably a good thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he's, then he's we also can he's actually good. hack on products together yeah he's funny he's super funny yeah mm-hmm. I, absolutely I love there I mean, aren't too many entrepreneurs that can crack jokes that's um yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I honestly I wish I could hang out with him more often, but you know, we have like, you know, nearly 60 companies we have to manage now. So um, so you know, the 60 companies. I mean, that's massive. So they're, they're mostly middleware, you're looking at gaming, looking at yes, metaverse, application layer. Application yep. layer. So there's the 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 layer, the yeah. middleware, and then the app. We're looking layer. at other, you know, type app categories now, we're looking, you know, social apps. Some music, although music, I think, is really going to be. I think video will become will happen before music, and those those two will kind of like merge ish. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how that will ultimately happen. Will, will MTV will come back? Happen. Do you think? Uh, MTV. Um, if it's mu- video and away. music, I think it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I, I used to watch I, a lot of it. Yeah, I, I, I for sure. I mean, I think like we just uh, we we're investors in a project called Live Peer. Uh, which is like the Akamai, if you will, of Web3. Um, a lot of video encoding and, you know, uh, you know, everything that you need in order to sort of do, you know, uh, video storage and streaming, mm-hmm. um, which is ridiculously expensive today. If you try to run, like it's like you try to stream a video through AWS, you're going to be paying like $3 a minute, like something mm-hmm. crazy like that, right? Mm-hmm which actually is makes it a barrier to entry for your companies right because you that basically means i must go raise venture capital to build this company because you know 3 dollars a minute that's for one user right mm-hmm. that's not for like you know a thousand users or 10 million users that's per user so you can think about the actual costs associated with building any kind of video based company and what livepeer went on to do is they basically created a supply demand model around leveraging uh, the video encoding component of a GPU, right? That would allow for unutilized capacity. So like when the GPU is not necessarily being used for other forms of mining, you could basically shift over to this other slot on the, uh, on the graphics processor to essentially encode video. And they got basically the cost of that from $3 a minute to 30 cents a minute. Wow. Right, which is substantial. phenomenal, mm, substantial. right? Uh, mm. Substantial. So that's just going to make it way easier to build startups that are doing cool video things. Um, and so we're starting to see a lot more stuff like uh, that of people that are kind of building 
you know, all sorts of really cool DAO-based, you know, video experiences and NFTs tied to videos for admittance and viewing and tradability of videos. I can be a shareholder in a, in a video and all sorts of different stuff that we're starting to see. Uh, still a little ways away because, you know, I think the biggest challenge at the moment is the computational demands that video has, right? Or rendering video is, is just like, it's just from a cycles perspective is way, 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 way more demanding than just moving data. Yeah. Um, or yeah, well, that's also data obviously too, but you're different, <laughs> it's bigger data. Um, but um, yeah, so I think video and that will probably move into, you know, probably like, you know, audio. I w- I'm not even, I wouldn't even say music, probably more like audio. Um, you know, seen a lot of like tokenization of stems in audio, right? So I can create like a drum beat and I can tokenize a drum beat and yeah. kind of compose compose audio stems, right? That could be really freaking awesome. Um, so yeah, like, you know, we're, and then the tokenization of real assets, I think is gonna be another really freaking massive category that we're actually not too far away from, I think. I think we're getting a lot closer. So if you wanna be a futuristic, futurist yourself for a moment, hmm. 10 years time, what are you doing? What companies would you be, you be investing in, guiding? Uh, let's see, 10 years from now. Um, I think, you know, Web3 is going to be like a 15-year transformation. Uh, you know, the internet took 25 years to get us to where we are today. So mm-hmm. from basically the TCP IP protocol, which was released by the IEEE in roughly the mid to late 90s, right, to 2022, where we are now, that's roughly 20, let's call it 25 years, yeah. you know, give or take a few years. Um you know, and just if you believe in various technological laws, it should happen twice as fast. Of right? course, of course. To go from web two to web three. What's so web four said, then? Uh, probably. Uh, my we don't live in the metaverse. Quantum, quantum, quantum computing probably will be a million times further along. Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting about quantum relative to blockchain is, you know, um, you know, to quantum is really this idea that a one and zero can simultaneously exist, right? And so you can you could effectively have non-deterministic computers, mm-hmm. right? So I can because a, a non-deterministic computer would basically experience multiple states at the same time, right? That's what the okay. internet is. The internet is the experience of multiple states. So I have the state of Facebook, the state of Twitter. This, you know, this is really broad brushstrokes, right? but you can experience essentially this multiple states, whereas a deterministic state machine, it's like one state and it's very like procedural, mm-hmm. linear, um, step-by-step kind of thing. If this, then that, if this, then that. Um, and, you know, that that is a computer, right? I click the mouse button on, you know, whatever, and the computer does something, input, change state, and then output back to my output device that allows me to do something else to change the state again. Um, and then I think, you know, with quantum, you get, you could, you could move into this because it is not, a, you know, the whole premise is experiencing multiple states at the same time. Um, and that is what makes quantum computing so powerful. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're already coming up with like quantum, in theory, we already have quantum resistant cryptography. Um, it's obviously never been tested because nobody's actually truly invented like a quantum computer 
there are quantum computers, but they're not operating at scale like we would totally imagine um, they would be in the future. Um, so, you know, some of that stuff has yet to be tested, but, um, you know, I think when you start thinking about, you know, blockchain networks upgrading in the future to kind of experience multiple states at the same time, um, that's probably what will happen. And then you'll have quantum resistant cryptography that will help secure those networks. Ah, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Google. Okay. <laughs> Don't quote me. <laughs> My head's we'll hurting. see where that goes. <laughs> oh, no, that's brilliant. We'll see where that goes. That is, that's yeah. it. Well, do you know what I always say? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? So quantum. I think quantum. Yeah, for sure. And people have been saying that for a really long time, but yeah. actually we are pretty, pretty close now. That's interesting. Anyway, I yeah. really enjoyed our chat today. I love the whole Web3 stuff. I didn't realize, lots of things I didn't realize before I spoke with you, like the rally thing started in college. I didn't actually put the, the dates together. Um, oh. And the I love the whole, your Web3 and your Web3 professor. I think you're the first Web3 professor I've met. Oh, well, that's cool. Mm. Yeah, no, it's very cool. So thank you very that's much, very Mr. Cool. Web Professor. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Professor. <laughs> thank you indeed for joining me. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.